The Start On Demand. On demand. Thousands of people attended Friday's Black Lives Matter rally at the Manitoba Legislature. And today we're asking the question, because many were saying it at the rally, what does defund the police actually mean? It's National Best Friends Day, so we'll meet two best friends who are bonded over a donated kidney. Do you fear growing old and ending up in a long-term care facility? A new global news series this week is looking at exactly that. And last week, I burnt the pizza... This week, I didn't even wake up when the delivery guy showed up. I didn't hear the phone. What have you slept through? I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb on the phone because the storms knocked out her internet. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Monday, June 8th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and almost McNab. I say almost, Greg, because we, say? we had some uh, some interesting weather, to say the least, south of the city and south of the border as well, uh, as you pointed out in uh, North Dakota. But because of the weather south of the city, <laughs> in classic McNab, she's, McNab, she's just calling in now. Uh, we don't have... <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like the virtual run to the studio. Yes. <laughs> she picks up the phone and calls in after we're already on the air. Uh, <laughs> we don't have Loren on her usual connection because, Loren, what's happening with your Internet situation? Well, I'm guessing it's because uh, yeah, I live south of Winnipeg, uh, and I'm guessing the storm we got last night, we had a ton of thunder and lightning. I don't know if my area got any hail, but I know they did south of us, and so I'm guessing that has to do with why the Internet is uh, hooped for me right now and why I'm on the phone. But I, uh, to be honest, the reason why I'm late calling in is I was running around the house looking for my earbuds so that I didn't have to hold my phone to my ear for the next four hours. And that was a real, you know, everybody has one of those drawers where you sure you put your things. <laughs> yeah. I've got like seven drawers. Oh, so here we are. Anyway, I'm here. How many drawers did you have to look through before you found them? Oh, I think five, four, four drawers. Wow. In- and they were in the first drawer I looked in. Oh, really? <laughs> back to, yeah, so then I went back to the first drawer, and I'm like, yep, of course, there you are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so Monday's off to a great start. Yeah, Greg, I was looking at the uh, the radar for uh, to see, because saw, I saw the, the alert that Winnipeg was under a severe thunderstorm watch, and I was getting alerts from various communities south of Winnipeg, and the radar south of the city looked super intense, but it's uh, also, like, really intense south of the border. What's happening in North Dakota? Holy smokes. Well, we got alerted to this, I think it was on Saturday, late Saturday, that Sunday was going to be an active day in weather in North Dakota. As they were already preemptively talking about the possibility of tornadoes. And so I was up at the, up at Lester Beach for the weekend, and uh, my buddy that I go and visit up there, he's quite the, the weather guru. He studied at university, and he was watching things. And so uh, two weather geeks together uh, for the better part of 24 hours was rather interesting. And uh, to watch what was going on in North Dakota was fascinating because, of course, the National Weather Service down there, their maps only go 
as far north as the border. Well, you can sort of imagine that those lines and those warnings and watches are going to continue into southern Manitoba, which sure enough, they did. And some parts of northern Minnesota, six, four inches of rain. Uh, we haven't got any official uh, rainfall to totals for any places in, in southern Manitoba yet, but I'm guessing that some of the areas down around Vita, Sundown, uh, that corner of the province could be seeing some significant or would have seen some very significant rainfall uh, last night. And our colleague Tristan Field-Jones, uh, of course, loves to chase storms and had some terrific pictures from uh, out around Morris. He, he didn't see there was no reported tornado activity in Manitoba, but he had some really great pictures. And the, the comment of the evening was Winnipeg, Southern Manitoba is in sepia right now. It's a filter <laughs> that you can use on your phone. And that's what it looked like right about 12 hours ago. Yeah, that yellow tint. Uh, I saw pictures all over social media. I could see it glaring through my Venetian blinds and I took a peek outside. It looked like we were going to get pounded even in Osborne Village, but I don't know that Well, if there was any storm activity, rain, thunder, lightning, I slept through it. Did you get anything out in North Kildonan, Greg? Uh, if we did, I slept right through it as well. Things are wet. I went out to water my flowers this morning and uh, didn't really have to do that. Obviously, Loren, you got hammered down in your part of the province. Did did you sleep through it or were you awake for no. it? Oh, no, it woke me up. It woke me up and I can't tell you the time because it feels like Sunday nights. I never know what time it is. But um, no, definitely right before midnight, I'm sure uh, the first storm came through and then there was a second round of it. And there is some possibilities we might see some more today, if not here, elsewhere. So we've got Kayla Evans coming on with us after 6.15. It's beautiful out there right now. I just stepped outside to take a look. It's a gorgeous day. But, uh, yeah, our first major storm of the season. So, yeah, we'll talk to Kayla in our next segment. And also, uh, just very quickly, I, was, I got home uh, Friday. I went golfing in the afternoon, and I got home, and I was tired. I, I thought I'd, I'd, maybe I'll head down to the rally, and then I thought, eh. But as soon as I sat down, uh, I, I, all I could hear was, like, Ch the chanting was so loud bouncing off of the building next to me. So I said, I got to go down there and have a look. And I, I knew it was going to be a big crowd, but it's one of those things where you, you have to see it to believe it, to see the legislative grounds filled with what some are estimating up to 20,000 people. It was just incredible, Greg. And the fact that it ended up being peaceful, even better. Yeah, absolutely magnificent uh, visuals, the sounds, uh, people uh, well-behaved by all accounts, although you did see uh, a little bit of, uh, I guess, graffiti, Brett, uh, in the aftermath. But uh, overall, it was something uh, to behold, one of the largest gatherings of this type in a long, long time in Manitoba. Loren, I don't know if you remember the peace marches of the early and uh, mid-1980s. Those were sometimes twenty to 30,000 people. Uh, but it was quite the impressive sight and uh, well done. Good on the organizers and everyone who attended. I don't think this is going to be something that we'll soon forget. No, and the spirit out of that was strong. And I, and I think the hope is the conversations that are coming out of it will continue, right? And so one of the big things we heard at that rally Friday was this notion of defunding the police. Does that actually mean taking money away from the police department or eliminating the police department altogether? No, that's not necessarily what they're talking about. It's, it's a reallocation of resources, and so we're going to have big conversations about that today. Minneapolis is making some major changes to its the police, police department, talking about a full dismantling of the department there. So we've got lots to focus on today. After 7, we'll have that chat. 
And uh, I'm proud of Winnipeg. I thought the, everything I saw, the videos, the pictures, uh, was terrific, Brett. Now, we are getting some amazing stories on things you have slept through, so keep them coming at 204-780-6868, and we'll share some of that with you coming up in a moment. Just want to quickly say happy birthday to my dad, Smash Gordon, 73 years old today. Happy birthday, Dad. I'm going to go find you a treat and bring it by after the show today. And coming up after Global News at 7.30, uh, Loren McNabb, today is it's a, it's a day of national significance, is it not? Yeah, it's actually National Best Friends Day. So shout out to all your best friends out there, the people that kind of make you happy and do things for you that uh, in your time of need. And so after 7.30, the reason why we're hooking this to National Best Friends Day is, you know, we all have friends who might help us out when we need to move. Brett or, or Greg, you know, help you get through a crisis. But imagine the gift of life. Give me that organ. Would you give an organ or a piece of your liver or someone... Uh, something like that to someone in need. And so we've got an incredible story of two friends who uh, have shared a great experience and now have more life to live with one another. It's a pretty beautiful story. That's coming up after Global News at 7.30. And a reminder, Loren is on the phone this morning because she has no internet. She is south of Winnipeg where all kinds of storming happened last night. The way policing is done in the city of Minneapolis could soon be coming to an end. As we were sharing with you just after 6.37, the majority of city councillors in that city said yesterday they support dismantling the Minneapolis Police Service and recreating a system that works for everyone. Yeah, it's the latest development following the death of George Floyd with a civil rights investigation already underway and an agreement by police to ban the use of neck restraints and chokeholds in that city. Now a disbanding of the police department appears to be next. Now that doesn't mean no police. What it likely means is a complete remake of the system used in Minneapolis. And as we know, it's not the only city calling for a change with its police department. During the rally held in Winnipeg Friday, we repeatedly heard demands and comments about defunding police. And so now we want to find out more on what that might mean. Zilla Jones is a Winnipeg lawyer who's discussed this topic extensively and joins us now. Good morning, Zilla. Good morning. Well, thanks for taking the time for being with us. I think a lot of people, when they hear the term defund, They might immediately just go to the conclusion that means no money for any police or eliminate the police service completely. But is that what defunding means? Walk us through the concept. Well, thank you for having me on this morning. And absolutely, in terms of defunding police, it can mean different things. So I think it's important that there isn't, it's important to understand that there isn't one particular thing that this means, and it can look different in every community. And this is a work in progress, and it's a gradual conversation and a gradual process. But generally what people are talking about when they talk about defunding police is investing less in the police and more in social services that can actually help people and can actually reduce crime and therefore make the community safer. So the goal of defunding police is to stop violent incidents and to stop confrontations and to find other ways of helping people. So, for example, you would invest more in addiction services or housing or mental health supports for people rather than asking the police to do those things. We know that the police budgets um, are usually the biggest part of the city's expenses. We know in Winnipeg, their budget is going up and up and up. I think it's going to be over $300 million by 2023. We've seen Winnipeg cutting back on things like libraries and community programs. 
So defunding the police would allow money to maintain those other services and increase them while putting less into the police budget. Why is this now the call that we're seeing? Uh, I mean, maybe it's been out there for years, but honestly, the first time I saw those words defund the police were on Friday night when I saw one of the people at the rally holding up a sign that said just that. Yes, it has been out there for many years, and it seems to be reaching the public more and being more frequently used uh, with the recent events, the killing of George Floyd and the protests that that has spurred. I don't think we've ever seen a protest as big in Winnipeg. And with such popular support, there were people of all races and backgrounds at this protest. Um, hearing some of the things that have been said for a long time in the activist community, that have been said for a long time for those who deal most directly with these issues, it is something that um, started in the United States and then has moved into Canada and other countries where we're having this call. So I think it just hasn't been at the critical mass where the number of people have been on the streets to what they're saying to the degree that they are now. I think people can wrap their head around the idea of more preventive work in the community. They can wrap their head around the idea of investing more community programs and investing in uh, more mental health outreach and even more people on the street with regard to uh, dealing with people with mental health issues, uh, someone other than a uniformed Winnipeg police officer. But the idea of getting rid of police altogether is something most of us uh, certainly can't wrap our head around. But what happens? has been done elsewhere. How extreme have we seen the defunding or quote-unquote dismantling of police services uh, elsewhere, Zilla? Well, this is something that is just starting to happen now. So we've seen that Los Angeles is cutting their police budget by, I believe it's about $150 million to start. Uh, they just announced that their police budget is over 50% of their city budget, and they are cutting back on that when they actually were going to increase it before these protests started. Minneapolis, I think, has perhaps gone the furthest. They're talking about uh, doing something completely different with their police, re-envisioning them, I believe, is the term they were using. Um, and there are other cities. New York is another one where they're talking about cutting back on policing. In fact, what happened in New York in 2000, I believe it was about 2014 or 15, the police pulled back their own services because they had some kind of labor dispute with the city. And the police were saying... When we pull back our services, crime is going to go up. In fact, it went down during that time. So we have that example of how when the police chose to do less, it did not impact on public safety. It did not cause any problems for the public. And so, again, when we talk about um, defunding and dismantling, it doesn't mean to completely get rid of anybody who might respond to murders, let's say, or violent defenses. But it means um, asking other people to do a lot of the things that we give police to do, such as the wellness checks. We just saw very unfortunately a young woman died in New Brunswick this past week because her boyfriend had called uh, police saying he was concerned about her. She ended up shot dead. So there have to be other people that can go in and do that work who don't bring guns, who are trained in how to de-escalate those situations. And that's what we're talking about when we're saying defunding. It's not that we're saying that there won't be anybody to help when there's an emergent crisis. Zilla Jones is a Winnipeg lawyer joining us live on 680 CJOB. Zilla, thank you so much for the time and for your insight into this. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Today's conversation inspired by the fact that I'm an idiot 
You could even, we, we should probably start a segment called Brett's a train wreck or Brett's personal life is a train wreck because last weekend I ordered Santa Lucia pizza on Friday and then on Saturday I went to reheat it in a frying pan and I fell asleep while that was happening and I burned it to charcoal. My apartment stunk like smoke for a week. The frying pan is a loss. But uh, this weekend I ordered a pizza Friday night at 8.30 and then I woke up at 11.30 to several missed phone calls and uh, several text messages from the driver from Santa Lucia Pizza Court. And I did not get my pizza, and I feel terrible, and I'm so sorry to Santa Lucia. They're such great partners of ours. I called them first thing. Like, they opened at 11 a.m. Saturday. I called them at 11 a.m. to apologize because I feel so stupid. But that got me wondering, what kind of things have you slept through? We're getting some hilarious text messages here, by the way. But, Greg, we got to start with you because your story is amazing. Well, I think you said it right, Brett. Every time I relive this, I'm amazed that I'm still alive. I went to Las Vegas for my buddy's stag party. So three days in Vegas, and I thought I would save a few dollars by flying out of Minneapolis. So I drove down to Minneapolis on a Thursday late in the afternoon because I think I had a 6 a.m. flight Friday morning. Got the flight out of Minneapolis and then flew down to Vegas. Uh, what happens there stays there, as you all know. And then uh, drove home. I was trying to get to Minnedosa to a golf tournament for Tuesday morning and was driving on Monday. I tried to get out of Minneapolis as soon as I could. Once I landed, I took a red-eye flight, got home about uh, home to Minneapolis, 7.30, 8 a.m., and started on my way home. And uh, to say the least, I was a little bit tired, and I found myself in a ditch on I-29 northbound between Fargo and Grand Forks, woke up doing 70 miles an hour in the ditch oh because I was on, uh, of course, had the, had the uh, what do you call that, uh, engaged, uh, the cruise control engaged, and uh, yeah, woke up wow. and uh, tapped the brake and drove back up onto the shoulder and looked around and got right back into the flow of traffic while my heart was beating at about 180 beats per minute. minute. I, you know what, with all the things, all the different signs that can be placed in a ditch, the overpasses and everything, it's just amazing. I never hit anything. My God. Kelly Moore, what about you? Anything, have you ever slept through anything important or yes. trivial? Yes, it wasn't trivial at all. It was back in my play-by-play days. I cannot believe I set, because I always have an alarm and then a backup alarm, set both of them for 5.15 p.m. instead of 5.15 a.m. Oh, no. Therefore, missed a flight with the Manitoba Moose hockey team to go to Detroit. And the always understanding Randy Carlisle had a field day with that. As a matter of fact, he went to two members. <laughs> Of the media and said, you know what, if it was a player, it'd be all over the front pages of your newspapers tomorrow. I expect the same thing for this doughhead. <laughs> this doughhead. Right, awesome. right in the middle of the restaurant, too. <laughs> Jeff Braun, what about you? I've been lucky so far, but only because I'm terrified of sleeping in and missing something. I, I do have a t bad tendency to hit snooze a few more times than I should, and I end up having to rush a lot. But so far, so good. And I'm like Kelly. I've got just multiple alarms set. I've got three different alarms that'll go off on two different devices. And sometimes I add a third device to the mix if it's really important and I just can't miss it. But so far, knock on wood, I've been doing okay. Awesome. What about you, Forte? Uh, back in, I was in junior high, 
there'd be a few times I did this and like, like I guess my alarm would go off and I would turn it off and I'd go back to bed. Yeah. And I just, it, I'd wake up and like, I don't remember doing it. So I was late for school a few times. Yeah? Yeah. I used to do that all the time. I would just turn it off instead of hitting snooze. And then I wake up in a panic eventually later. At, like I'll, and I realize I have three minutes to not to not only get up, but I have three minutes to catch my bus, which is about a two-minute run down the street. So it's essentially grab whatever T-shirt and shorts I could find and get down there. Loren McNabb, what about you? I'm kind of like Jeff Braun, where I'm so worried all the time that I'm going to sleep through something that I end up not sleeping well at all. A large portion of the time. But what I am super guilty of is ghosting at a party or a family gathering, you know, where the night's just getting going and I've decided I'm too tired, so I'll go to bed. And then I honestly, at least once a year, particularly with my family, miss out on like one of those legendary nights, you know, where something crazy happens or someone tells this hilarious story or nobody can stop laughing for a week because, oh, I can't believe so and so did that. And I wasn't there. I've just gone to bed and missed it all. So I try so hard to be like, no, this year I'm going to stay up. Don't worry. You'll see me there. And next thing you know, I'm like slinking off in the night. Like, see you later. I don't want to be part of this. So, no, I don't miss it because I've slept through it. I miss things sometimes because I decided I'm too tired to stay up, which sucks just as bad. Andrea texting us saying, I fell asleep during the homily at my wedding. It was a 34-degree June day, and I was exhausted. My maid of honor had to wake me up when the priest asked a question, and I didn't respond right away. I used the excuse that I was listening intently with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everyone in our circle knows I was asleep. And then another text here. can't beat that. (laughs) Another one saying, "I I was in Australia at the Sydney Opera House, which by itself is amazing. Years ago, watching the symphony, and I fell asleep, snoring loudly with my wife, my brother-in-law, and a few of his friends. They all got a good chuckle out of it. They still bring it up to this day. So let us know at 204-780-6868 the things that you have slept through, whether it's just something small like me sleeping through my pizza delivery or something important like missing a flight. Uh, Oh, my God, I just had a flash to Houston when I... Uh, picked up the phone for the wake-up call and then put it back down, and we missed our first shuttle and almost missed our flight home back in 2001 when I went to WrestleMania with my buddy Burkus. Backling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on the start. Question of the day at cjob.com, brought to you by Credit Aid. Helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit credit Call 204-987-6890. Friday afternoon's question. Do you think physical distancing should be enforced at large protests or rallies? 79% said yes. 21% said no. You can cast your vote at cjob.com, and we will get a new question up for you soon. It is a big day When it comes to friendship, it is National Best Friends Day. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I'm a single guy. It's just me. I don't even have a pet. Uh, But I can say that I feel blessed with the number of people who whom I would consider not just friends, but good friends. I know I've always got somebody I can call if I need a hand, whether it's moving. Had to do that twice last year. Uh, or if I just need someone to chat with, or if I need someone to join me, Greg, uh, for rum o'clock. Yeah, you know what? Uh, friends are fantastic. Family is incredible. But friends that are like family is something extra special. 
and what our next guest did to help her friend puts her at the top of the friends list. Best friends, uh, you be the judge. Like many Manitobans, Judy Scott and Kathy Krawchuk met at the rink. Their daughters are both speed skaters. Not long after Kathy learned her friend Judy was suffering from kidney failure, the only thing keeping Judy alive was dialysis. And when Kathy realized that at some point that wouldn't be enough to keep her friend alive, she decided to step in and do what she could do to help. She donated her kidney, Loren. As Brett was saying, this is National Best Friends Day. So our friends over at Transplant Manitoba thought there was perhaps no better way to celebrate friendship than to share this story. So joining us now is Judy Scott. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. And with her, of course, Kathy Krawcheck. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Well, thank you both for sharing this incredible story with us. Judy, we'll start with you. Before learning about this donation and about what Kathy was willing to do, can you just walk us through what your daily routine was to manage your kidney disease, your kidney failure? Well, I was on peritoneal dialysis, so I was able to hook up to a machine at night and it would run for nine hours. So I was sort of free during the day, but lack of energy, lack of life, basically, when you're on dialysis. So her gift was amazing. Kathy, why did you decide to give your friend your kidney? Um, well, like you guys said, I just realized one day at the rink that, you know, she has a daughter, Alexa, and her husband, Malcolm. And I thought, if nobody helps her, they're going to be without uh, a parent and a wife. And I, I thought if that was me, would somebody help me? So that was a pretty easy choice once I realized that I was able to do it. Judy, it's one thing to have a friend to offer to drive you to a doctor's appointment or help you with some gardening or, or maybe drive your, your daughter to speed skating because you can't do it. But to offer you a kidney, what was your reaction to that? How did it all go down? Well, it's interesting because I knew what Kathy had to go through with testing. So I kept it very low-keyed inside. I was absolutely bursting, but it took Kathy's phone call sneaky little phone call to let me know, yes, this is real. Then it's been nonstop since then. So tell us about that phone call. So, and, and maybe I've misunderstood the story here. Has the donation happened already or you're still waiting for this to happen, Judy? No, we were waiting for the testing to be completed. So Kathy sends me this text and she says, hey, do you want to meet in Winnipeg? Because she had got the call and everything was okay before I did. So I said, sure, we can meet in Winnipeg. What's up? And she says, well, how about if we meet at the Health Science Center on November 28th? She says, I've got a kidney to donate to you. And it was at that point it all became reality. Wow. So, Kathy, in terms of donating a kidney, have there been any ramifications for you? Like, is, is everything cool with you? Um, you know what? It, at first, the first three weeks were kind of uh, very, very tiring and a little bit more than I expected. But after healing from all of the uh, incisions, it's no different. I don't feel any different than I did before I gave it. And uh, I am so glad that I made that decision. I do have to watch my weight, which is unfortunate. But uh, as far as energy goes and whatnot, I, I feel the same as if I did before giving it. Judy, uh 
this bond that you and Kathy must have now is uh, as strong as anything uh, that would bond uh, brothers and sisters, brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, because you are like blood now. Oh, we're totally. She is definitely another sister. I've got two of my own sisters, but I turn to Kathy when things get pretty rough in my personal life, and she's she's one amazing woman. So, Judy, when you go through this process and, and you know that you're um, facing a situation, you know, like days or weeks or months of dialysis and then kind of the unknown that might have come after that, had there been other attempts to find a donor? You know, I, I'm assuming along the way other family members want to help, but just because you want to help doesn't mean you can, right? You have to be the match. And so I'm curious how many conversations you've had about other loved ones in your life potentially donating along the way. Well, a different side of this story is this is actually my second donation because my first donation was from my sister and that kidney lasted for 12 years. So I'm the youngest. My siblings are all quite a bit older than I am. So my family, I couldn't turn to them at that point. So I was waiting for to get the call like so many people out there. Okay, we've got a kidney available. And then Kathy stepped forward with this unbelievable offer. And that's sort of how things worked out. So, Kathy, I understand as well that uh, you say that the hardest part was waiting for that final phone call to confirm that you could safely make your donation. Uh, How long did that process take from when you first stepped in to say, I want to do this, to them determining whether or not you could actually do it? Uh, I initially got the card from her husband, Malcolm, who shops with me at this Selkirk Home Harbor. Uh, just a little plug for my work because they've been so good to me. Um, and I held on to that card for four months before I called. And then they gave me, it started, I'm going to say at the beginning of March. And it went until they called me at the beginning of November to let me know that I was able to donate. So three weeks to the day that they called me, we donated. I donated my kidney. So Kathy, it was a process. It was a huge process, but uh, sometimes it felt very long, and sometimes when I look back at it, it didn't take that long at all. Kathy, they say it's better to give than to receive. How 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 good does this feel to to see Judy receive what you gave her? Oh well, don't get me crying, but you know I'm a mom, and there's lots of moms out there, and I just thought it. As a mother and as a person that's able to do do it, if I didn't, if I was able to do it and I didn't do it, what does that say about me? And now I look at her and I look how, you know, great she looks. She looks so fantastic and healthy. And knowing now that she's able to live a somewhat normal life, uh, there nobody until you do it, you really don't understand how much a donor gets out of it, as well as the recipient. And I feel just so grateful that I was able to help and that, you know, kind of puts things in perspective. So I, I just feel just very grateful that I was able to do it. Judy, before we let you guys go, we just have about 30 seconds here. I mean, you have a friend there saying she was grateful to help. I think there's a message out there for the rest of us. Cause we often think, Oh, I wouldn't be able to do that. Or I'd be scared to do that. And here you are with this incredible gift of life, like life has it been extended for you. What's your message for everybody else, Judy? Oh, I just wish there was a thousand Kathy Crawchucks out there because there's so many of us in need of a kidney transplant. And we are so blessed to have Manitoba transplant 
right here in our own province because the team in there are second to none. So I just wish more people would step forward like Kathy did. Well, Judy Scott and Kathy Krawchuk, thank you so much for joining us this morning to share your wonderful story. Once again, uh, Judy Scott, the recipient of a kidney courtesy of her friend, Kathy Krawchuk. Uh, We're telling you this story because it is National Best Friends Day. And what better way to celebrate best friends than with the sharing of an organ? Thank you so much once again, Kathy and Judy, for sharing this amazing story. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, in case you're just tuning in, over the weekend on Friday night, I ordered a pizza from Santa Lucia Pizza on Corridon at 8.30 p.m., and I didn't wake up until 11.30 p.m. I fell asleep, and I missed the phone call when they arrived at 9.30, so whoops. I'm so sorry. I feel so stupid about that. By the way, you can win a pizza from Santa Lucia on Hal Anderson Afternoons today, as well as on our social media. But listen to this text from Navy, who says, One winter, I slept through a home sun lamp tanning session. So it's a couple of lamps on a stand. Uh, She says, a home sun lamp tanning session many years ago, back in my college days. I woke up after falling asleep for five hours under the warmth. I woke up and I thought I was blind because I couldn't open my eyes. My eyelids were melted shut. My roommates rushed me to hospital. I can laugh at my stupidity now, but we've got one here, Greg, uh, from Kevin, that kind of comes along the lines of your story where you fell asleep on the interstate and woke up doing 70 in the ditch. Yeah, well, you know what? I can fall asleep anywhere, but I don't think I can fall asleep where where Kevin did. I'll never forget it, nor will I do it again. Bought a brand new Harley Davidson in 1994, and it came with some high-tech device at the time. One thing, uh, one, one being, pardon me, this thing called cruise control. Yeah, familiar, Kevin. I headed out on the Trans Canada east for a test ride. I applied the cruise at 110 kilometers per hour. Everything seemed fine as I relaxed and even crossed my arms over my chest. Yes, fell asleep and will never recover those lost five kilometers. Idiot, have never tried bike cruise since. Kevin, so glad things worked out for you. That is harrowing, man. And uh, Loren Brenda sent us a great story about uh, a concert. Oh, we've got people who slept through, you know, the deplaning when your plane lands in Toronto and you need to get off. We had a listener text in about that. This one, I don't know how she did it. At some point, you think the noise would have woke her up. But she says, I slept through most of an Eagles concert. My husband couldn't believe it, but we had been awake for well over 24 hours flying home from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. So that's a good excuse. But yeah. sleeping through an Eagles concert, that's, that would get pretty loud, though. I would sleep through an Eagles concert. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Start, Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And we were talking in our last half hour, just to very quickly revisit the trivia question, was uh, about a quarter of a quarter of pet owners have done this, and the answer was lied to their boss about having to take care of a sick pet, usually to get out of work. And one listener texting us saying, I had one employee who says he couldn't come to work because his dog pushed him down the stairs. And uh, he said, did did it actually happen? And he says, yep, I've heard a lot of reasons. And that one ranks as the best. I can Mm. never forget it. So 
Yeah, dogs, uh, maybe the dog was hungry, saying, hey, you're not going to feed me enough? This is what you get there, bu- bucko. So, <laughs> Bucko, nice. <laughs> yeah, have a nice ride down the stairs. Uh, one of the many conversations that's come out of this pandemic, Loren, is just how much attention or perhaps inattention we've paid to some of our long-term care facilities. Oh, I think that's a major conversation. It was just a few weeks ago, of course, that we were sharing with our listeners about these major and and really serious allegations of neglect and possibly abuse coming out of some homes in Ontario and Quebec. And that's because there were members of the military who had gone in, as you might recall, to help during COVID-19. And while they were in there, they documented what they called a blatant disregard for infection, infection control, and in some cases, horrible treatment of residents. And so the allegations, they're just against five Ontario homes and 25 homes in Quebec. But as a result of that, as a result of all this idea that we can't necessarily go in and see our loved ones as normal right now. There's a lot of people across the country asking, could this happen here in my backyard or is it already happening here? And just to be clear here, Loren, the, the military wasn't there undercover. They were there well, to help. So, so people knew they were there and this was still going on, correct? Correct. They were just there to help. And then while they were there, they're on the inside looking at what, you know, from an outsider's perspective saying, is this the norm to have it be operating, you know, where someone's diaper is not changed for a great length of time or people aren't getting the help they need or to have cockroaches in one of the cases is one of the, the things that they witnessed. And so I think they were asking the question, is this the norm? And if, if this is the norm, Greg, what the heck? Yeah, well, our next guest is asking the same questions. Jill Croto is our global news reporter based out of Alberta. And this week, she's launching a series that will take a look at long-term care in Canada. Good morning, Jill. Good morning to you. We appreciate you taking the time this morning. This is a a big topic of conversation, a a big matter of concern, as Brett outlined, coming out of COVID-19. It it may be one of those mixed blessings for us. What what made you decide to look into uh, the situation in Alberta, in your own province? Was there there anything you were hearing and, and realizing, hey, this is a concern here as well? Oh, most definitely. I mean, when this pandemic started, there was one particular home in a southeast community here in Calgary. And I was interviewing families of loved ones day after day after day. And the deaths were mounting. And at the end of it, over the course of roughly a four-week period, 21 residents had died in one single facility. And I just thought, I have to do something more. You know, as, as journalists, we're, you know, we sort of rise to these higher callings. And it, it just compelled me to say, okay, what is the problem? Is there something that we can use this opportunity and leverage this to really show what is going on inside these homes? Because these homes are really under an incredible amount of stress and pressure. And the COVID-19 pandemic really just revealed all of those cracks. Who are you speaking to for tonight's story? Seniors. I thought they would be probably the most honest voice. I talked to four different seniors. They're living independently, happily now, but they are sitting in their living rooms watching the news thinking, my God, what is next for me? You know, I mean, they're thinking about the next step because that may very well likely be long-term care. And the anxiety and the concern and the worry. I mean, I'll tell you something. They told me very bluntly that they would rather die. They would rather die than go into long-term care. And that is pretty telling about the state of mind of some of our seniors right now watching this crisis unfold. 
Well, because, you know, at one part of you, Jill, you're thinking you want to live this long, full life. And so you're looking towards, you know, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s. And then there's the other part of you that thinks, if I get to that age, where will I be and where will I be staying? And so from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, the rules are different governing things. And then, of course, there's the question of money and whether you're going into the public system or paying privately for things. And there's so many parts of that equation, not to mention the fact that you need to have a conversation with your own family about what you hope long-term care looks like for you. There's just so many pieces of the equation. Well, and I think that's what it triggers. You know, I've been starting to have these conversations with my parents because I think, okay, what are you going to want? I don't want you to dread going into a long-term care mm-hmm. home. These are the golden years. These are supposed to be the, you know, the best years of your life. Um, so it, it's compelled a lot of families to have these hard conversations. And once you start digging and you realize the burden and the onus that's on families when you're looking at certain homes, okay, like what is the history of this place? Have they had inspections done? Like what is the real transparency? And you've really got to look hard to find out certain homes and what kind of care that they're providing. So I think that there's an opportunity. A lot of people are saying we need better standards here. And if something happens inside these homes, what's the accountability and what's the action? So families don't feel like, okay, legal action is our only recourse because we've heard so many class action lawsuits come out of this pandemic. There has to be a better way rather than just suing these big, huge conglomerate companies that run these long-term care homes. So such personal conversations coming out of this and the idea of, of, you know, rather not going anywhere as opposed to going Mm -hmm. to long-term care is a big one. It's a discussion that we had this weekend, in fact, and amongst my group of friends, but there's a conversation I had with my cousin that I will never, ever forget because this is kind of a Canada U S phenomena, personal care homes. And he's from Mexico. My, my cousin's married to a a gentleman from Mexico. And so we've been, we've been cousins by marriage marriage for over 25 years now. And we were having a chat one day about, the time he went to somebody in San Francisco, he's working in a restaurant in San Francisco and he saw a reference somewhere to an old folks home Mm -hmm. and he went to his friend and he said, what is this old folks home? He didn't understand the concept (laughs) because that's not his culture. That's not the way they do this. So is there a chance, Jill, in your research and your conversations, might we see the conversations open up more about multi multi-generational housing in Canada because it's sort of a foreign concept to us. Well, exactly. And it's like we talked to, she's a designer and she works with a lot of architects and she figures out how do we age in place? You know, so we don't have to be warehoused in these massive institutions. I mean, can you appreciate and imagine somebody who has dementia, you know, you're putting them into this massive facility, navigating buildings and hallways and, you know, you're around you know, countless people. So it's like, this is not the best idea for our aging parents. So it's like, how do we figure out a way to keep them in a place where they are happy and healthy until they take their last breath? And there are executable ways. You don't need, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to convert your home. There are places to make it comfortable. I mean, certainly I know some families don't have the ability to do that and to care for their parents and keep them in the home. But there is another way with that step in between. So it doesn't feel like they need 24-7 round-the-clock care. 
there are things that they can do within their own home where really they are the happiest. I mean, we grow up in homes. We grow up around our families. We don't want to be, you know, in a room sharing it with three other strangers. Jill Croton. We want to be in a place. Sorry, finish your thought, Jill. I was just going to say we want to be in a place, and I think that this is something that our seniors deserve. Jill Croto is our global news reporter based out of Alberta. This week, she's launching a series that will take a look at long-term care in Canada. Jill, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. It was an incredible sight to behold on Friday night. As I mentioned earlier, in case you're just tuning in, I got home Friday evening, and I was tired, so I just sat down on the couch, and and I... I wasn't sure if I was going to head down to the Manitoba legislative grounds, but as soon as I sat down, I could hear the chanting just thundering off of my neighboring building because I live in Osborne Village just over the bridge, and I thought, I got to I gotta walk down the street and have a look at what's going on. And indeed, I was just stunned at the sight of thousands of people who came together, Loren, to speak out against racism. Yeah, and different crowd estimates have pegged the number at, you know, varying degrees of tens of thousands, but what we're talking about, what many people are saying is that there was more people at this protest than they've seen potentially at any other event or march, uh, not just in the last few years, but, you know, in recent history for sure. And so we're talking about approximately 20,000 people who packed the grounds of the Manitoba Legislative Building for this peaceful Black Lives Matter rally before they went on to march to the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. And the pictures are incredible, Greg. They really are. And uh, one of those in attendance, community activist performer, the head of Afrikanad, and our friend A.Y. DeSenator joins us. Good morning, A.Y. Good morning. Good morning, CJOV. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, McGregor. Everyone listening, good morning. So that positivity, we just love it. That's why we wanted to speak with you this morning. And A.Y., what was your reaction when you saw how many people showed up on Friday evening? Oh, my goodness. Friday was a day that I can tell you categorically that a new shift was made in the land called Winnipeg. Uh, Over 20,000 people actually trooped out in support of the march against uh, racism that day. I've never seen something like that in my entire life in this land. If I say entire life, that was over five five years I've been in Winnipeg. It it was awesome. It's like a new revolution ordered by people by themselves. A sincere and true brotherhood, I can say sisterhood, or maybe humanhood defying COVID and even status of any person that you can bring together. Irrespective of callers, everyone came at Winnipeg, turned up against all the hearts to support and rally around racial discrimination and to support anti-racism. And we are so glad that day was made. And this was all put together by young, young, very young millennials, young ones. And we from every area had to support because we're not just tired of it. It's unheard of that this should continue over 400 years. We don't know why. Because racism is just a symptom, is a symptom of human ego, you know, superiority complex, and it is enough. 
And that day was a day that we saw a lot of people coming out to support this movement. In so many ways, Awad, it was joyful, you know, to, to see that type of movement and that the, the repeated chants and the call for change. And it comes at, at the because of a life being lost in Minneapolis. And so I'm curious for you, so many mixed emotions with that. What have the past two weeks been like as you first learned and saw the video of George Floyd's death and then had to stop and think about what racism looks like in our own country and our own city? You are so right in saying that. And this is not just because of Floyd's death. This has been happening. I can tell you this has been on over and over years, even here in Winnipeg, either justifiable or not, death of blacks has been ongoing, uh, you know, on due discrimination, the way they've been handled based on their racial and their race by the cops, the police, you know, we might not agree, but the truth is this is happening. And we just saying that enough is enough. Can we all just be treated like human? We run the same blood. This is one thing that people saw. And I think I never expected uh, Winnipeg to all turn out that way. Like all colors were there. There's no need of saying there's a color, there's a race, you're from here. We are just one human race. And that is why anti-racist rally came up, justice for blacks came up. You know, all people were saying, some chants that you can hear, Black Lives Matters, Justice for Black Lives. Some people came up with other things, but we're not being perturbed by that. Like, all life matters. Yes, all life matters. But it's not all houses are on fire. All houses are not on fire. If your house is on fire, then your house matters. At the, at the time that we are now, we need to all support this movement. It is something that is a good cause that we all need to support. And that is why I was so proud of Winnipeggers. I was so proud of everyone that turned up, irrespective of what color they bear. AY, just a couple of quick questions here. First of all, just maybe a reminder. Uh, how long have you been in Canada now? You came here from Africa, right? Yes. Uh, this is my fifth year plus, uh, uh, five and a half years going. And, um, you know, and it's been totally exciting. I've been seeing a lot of uh, good, good, good stuff, though, in between those ugly things, you know, behaviors, you know, the way people react. But just keeping positive, we need to work hard to just stay positive. And that's why we are always still supporting that. No matter what, Canada has its own issue, but we, need to face the reality that racism is in the land, is in the system. We need to face the systemic racism with a systemic solution, just like Uzoma, one of the MLA, said. What's your experience been with racism in your five years here? Oh, if I have to start counting about that, my experience has been, um, me personally, I, I, I have... Um, have this belief in myself that no matter what you throw at me, I'm just going to dodge it. I'm going to take it. I'm going to tolerate you, and I'm going to educate you. I've worked in different places uh, during my time, and during the time I've been in 
Winnipeg. I've worked in different companies. I've seen the way uh, employers, managers, supervisors that are not of my color treat me. Uh, I don't want to mention the company, but I left a company when I worked there for barely just three months plus because my supervisor really was giving me hard time. We all have a target. And if every other person is not meeting their target in sales, there's no, nothing to worry about. But when it comes to me, she is always so hard on me. And I can't truly complain. They will say, no, you're not meeting it. That's that just what she's doing. But the truth is, it's just because this, the, the, it's, it's unfair to just open my mind and say, are you, are you a racist? I don't want to even say that word. That word to me feels, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. But the truth is, that was what I, I, I was subjected to. I worked in the school system for over three years. I see kids of five, six, seven years old, you know, chanting, I've been called the N-word, I've been called, uh, you know, I've, I, they make a mockery of where I came from. You're from Africa. I think, uh, uh, were, you, were you on the tree too? Do you hop like the monkeys? Kids. I want to keep saying that. That means maybe at home they do play, uh, the parents do say stuff like that, and they pick it all up. And, you know, the way even kids on the playground during recess time play with each other when they see a kid size of other race, uh, other color, I feel disgusted. Like, what is wrong with you, sis, with this system? How do you even know about this? Uh, this your hate? You know, the segregation is there. And all this culminated because the system is not okay. The system and this whole thing need to be addressed. The anti-racism uh, matter need to be really addressed. We need to incorporate it into school. We need to teach ourselves, our kids, our people that, come on, we are just one human. We shouldn't, you know, you know let the symptoms of security complex of maybe I'm better than you, you know, heat us up and divide us and not make us to go forward. And if I have to be telling you all my, uh, all the things that I, I went through, uh, we will not leave this place today. I saw an interview with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the other day, someone that I've respected since I was a little kid for a variety of different reasons, AY. And he summed up a five-minute conversation and interview this way. He said, you know what, let's just go out and make friends, make acquaintance with someone that doesn't look like you, and we'd be so much better off. What do you think about you, that advice? That is just the same way I've been living my life, too. And I support that statement. But, you know, if you are going to go on doing this and it's not being reciprocated, it's not being given back, friendship is a two-way thing. If I like you, if I'm working towards making us to, to look good like one, like Michael Jackson sang that song, if you're black, if you're white, it doesn't matter. The world needs a place where all women need to see themselves as one. Friendship is a two-way thing. If I like you, if I'm working towards me being your friend and you're not reciprocating in the other way, if you're not mutual, there's, there's nothing I can do. If you're still looking at me, if you're looking down at me, if you're not accepting my friendship, there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is just keep doing it, but we get tired at the time. 
You get tired at the time you see the cops, you see someone at your working place, you see your neighbor. I have the best neighbor in my neighborhood. I live in St. Norbert. My two neighbors are like angels. Uh, Mark and, and, and the other family, they treat me as if I, I am been here for 20 years. They come shovel my, my graduate during uh, winter time. They help me cut my lawn. I didn't ask them. That is how people should be living. And that is the same message I want to put out there. We should all be one. We should fight this anti-racist thing. We should, we, should, we should support it. We should fight this injustice. We should all just come together and be one. And let's speak one language together. Love is the language. A.Y. DeSenator joining us live on 680 CJOB. He is a community activist. He is a performer. He is the head of Africanad. A.Y., thank you so much, as always, for the visit. A real treat to talk to you. I love CJOB. 680 is the best station, and I love you guys. Thank you for having me again and again. All right, A.Y., thank you so much, buddy. Great to talk to you this morning on The Start. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.